I'm sorry. He's very eccentric. I want one. No. If you can make God bleed, people will cease to believe in him. They will be blood in the water. And the sharks will come. All I have to do is sit here and watch as the world will consume you. <laughs> Our priority is to get the Iron Man weapon turned over to the United States of America. I am Iron Man. The suit and I are one. Contrary to popular belief, I know exactly what I'm doing. What? What I saw you do to Tony Stark on that track? Wow. You need my resources. I want to make Iron Man look like an antique. This whole lone gunslinger act's unnecessary. You don't have to do this alone. Please. Textbook narcissism. Agreed. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Is It Yours, the movie review program where we ask the ever-important question, Is It Yours? I'm Paul Spataro, and today I am joined by my former podcasting mentor, and now the mentor, the, the mentee has become the master. <laughs> I have you on as my guest. <laughs> Mr. I guess Scott that's one, Beach Gardner. I guess that's one way to look at it. How's it going? Uh, you know, I was just hoping, I don't know, I thought of that. This afternoon, I thought of saying that, and I just figured you'd say, only a master of evil, Paul. <laughs> so I was a little disappointed you didn't pick up the cue, was, but okay. I was trying to think of a, I was trying to think of a, of a play on, on men, mental, you know, mentor and mental and all that, and it just didn't happen fast enough. <laughs> but I mean, there is, there is not the, the master part of it, but there is some truth to the mentoring aspect of it, because I had, I had the podcasting bug before. We started podcasting together, but you you facilitated it. So really, you know, you're to blame for this. Don't blame me, man. <laughs> you're, you're the one who let the monster out of the cage, and you got to deal with the, with the uh, the rampage in the streets now. <laughs> I've created a monster. <laughs> so Scott and I have been talking uh, oh for a few months now. And we have a, a long list of movies that we're going to cover. We really could do Is It Yours, just me and Scott, for quite a while before we oh, run out of yeah. movies. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it's it's getting to be a crazy long list because I, I think there's even movies that I haven't even men- mentioned to you yet that are kind of on my mental checklist, you know, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. I, I But I didn't want to inundate you with... You know, with just this massive list of movies, because you know, I know you have other people that uh, 
that you want to have on the show and that sort of thing. But yeah, there was quite the long list. Well, I like to spread it out. I like to get a lot of people in there. It's one of one of the fun parts about doing the show is just getting to talk to people who I might not otherwise talk right. to. But on the other hand, you know, there's there's always a seat for you here. Aww. So you, you you let me know when you got movies to cover and we'll cover them. All Today right. From our long list, we've plucked out Iron Man 2. Now, anybody who's listened to us on Back to the Bins at any length know that while this movie tends to be a little bit maligned, I'm not going to say much maligned, but a little bit maligned by the general public, people put it down. But Scott and I are both fans of this. I think I think you're a little bit bigger fan than I am, but we both enjoy this movie and, and think that it's wrongly criticized. Well, see, I... I'm glad to hear you. I'm really genuinely glad to hear you say that because I was under the impression that you did not think very highly of this movie. So that that's refreshing because, um, yeah, I don't know if much maligned is, is a fair way to put it, but what I see is, um, I see an awful lot of, and you probably see this as well on Facebook and, and places like that. You you see these, and I know like Yahoo News every now and again. Like basically, whenever there's a new Marvel movie, people feel the need to keep ranking them. You know, the top Marvel movies, or you know, all the Marvel movies in order. And invariably, this movie is buried at the bottom of the list, and I don't understand why. So, uh, well, let me play what, devil's advocate a little bit, there okay? Because if I rank my Marvel movies, and what are we at? 14 now? 15? Something like that? 14, I believe, with, with Doc Strange. Yeah, I think that's right, because I I just rearranged my DVD shelf the other day, and I counted all the Marvel DVDs, and the only one I don't have yet is is Doctor Strange. So, yeah, I, there were 13. So, yeah, it must be 14 now. Okay, so of those 14 movies, if I rank them in order, the problem is I'm ranking... 14 movies that I feel every one of them is of pretty good quality. Uh, by the, the Is It Yours scale, I don't think in my own personal tastes there's a movie in the Marvel Cinematic Universe that falls lower than Jaws 2. I think most of them fall into Jaws 2. Uh, you know, there's some possibilities of Jaws 1 on, on some of them. Uh, but I think, you know, there's a lot of Jaws 2 in there. And Jaws 2 is a pretty high rating as far as I'm concerned. Right. Yeah, I'm so, sure. So we'll, now, I'm sorry. I, I don't. Uh, I'll let you say your point in a second. But I was just going to say. I, I, I think we'll we'll end up talking more about that scale. But yeah, I'm. I'm, I'm <laughs> yeah, I, I kind of feel the same way. Yeah. So, like, when I rank these movies, when I rank the fourteen of them, I would say this movie is probably in the bottom third, but. That's still a high rating. That's still a movie I think very highly of. I think has very good rewatchability, and you know it's it's a it's a highly ranked movie as far as I'm concerned. It's you know if you started throwing in if Marvel started making some crap movies and then I said it's in the bottom third, now you got a criticism. But until they make one I don't like, <laughs> you know, it's it, it, there's always going to be praise here. So you know I don't rank it as highly as you. I know that. But I still think highly of this movie, and I enjoy it. And like I said, I think rewatchability is very high on this movie. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Because there's a lot going on in it, and I think that's one of the things that we should get into. Uh, I'm going to give the quick plot synopsis, just because sure. I like to know. In Russia, the media covers Tony Stark's disclosure of his identity as Iron Man. Ivan Vanko, whose father Anton Vanko has just died sees this and begins to build a miniature arc reactor similar to Stark's 
Six months later, Stark is a superstar and uses his Iron Man suit for peaceful means, resisting government pressure to sell his designs. He reinstitutes the Stark Expo to continue his father Howard's legacy. The palladium core in the arc reactor that keeps Stark alive and powers the armor is slowly poisoning him, and he cannot find a substitute. Growing increasingly reckless and despondent about his impending death and choosing not to tell anyone about his condition, Stark appoints his personal assistant, Pepper Potts, CEO of Stark Industries, and hires Stark employee Natalie Rushman to replace her as his personal assistant. Stark competes in the Monaco Historic Grand Prix, where he's attacked in the middle of the race by Vanko, who wields electrified whips. Stark dones his Mark V armor and defeats Vanko, but the suit is severely damaged. Vanko explains his intention was to prove to the world that Iron Man is not invincible. Impressed by Vanko's performance, Stark's rival, Justin Hammer, fakes Vanko's death while breaking him out of prison and asks him to build a line of armored suits to upstage Stark. During what he believes is his final birthday party, Stark gets drunk while wearing the Mark IV suit. Disgusted, Air Force Lieutenant Colonel James Rhodes dons Iron Man's Mark II prototype armor and tries to restrain him. The fight ends in a stalemate, so Rhodes confiscates the Mark II for the U.S. Air Force. Nick Fury, director of S.H.I.E.L.D., approaches Stark, revealing Rushman to be Agent Natasha Romanoff, and that Howard Stark was a S.H.I.E.L.D. founder whom Fury knew personally. Fury explains that Vanko's father jointly invented the arc reactor with Stark, but when Anton tried to sell it for profit, Stark had him deported. The Soviets, the Soviets sent Anton to the Gulag. Fury gives Stark some of his father's old material. A hidden message in the diorama of the 1974 Stark Expo proves to be a diagram of the structure of a new element. With the aid of his computer, Jarvis, Stark synthesizes it. When he learns Vanko is still alive, he places the new element in his arc reactor and ends his palladium dependency. At the expo, Hammer unveils Vanko's armored drones, led by Rhodes in a heavily weaponized version of the Mark II armor. Stark arrives in the Mark IV armor to warn Rhodes, but Vanko remotely takes control of both the drones and Rhodes' armor and attacks Iron Man. Hammer is arrested while Romanoff and Stark's bodyguard, Happy Hogan, go after Vanko at Hammer's factory. Vanko escapes, but Romanoff returns control of the Mark II armor to Rhodes. Stark and Rhodes together defeat Vanko and his drones. Vanko seemingly commits suicide by blowing up his suit. At a debriefing, Fury informs Stark that because of Stark's difficult personality, S.H.I.E.L.D. intends to use him only as a consultant. Stark and Rhodes receive medals for their heroism. In a post-credits scene, S.H.I.E.L.D. agent Phil Coulson reports the discovery of a large hammer at the bottom of a crater in a desert in New Mexico. That's the end. Now, I know one of the things that you love about this movie so much, and I think if you, if you listen to that synopsis, is all the world building that's going on. Oh, definitely, yeah. And there's yeah. a ton of it in this movie. And that's yeah. one of the things that is enjoyable, because it gives it that greater... Just, just that, that greater feeling in the in the Marvel Universe, in a movie that otherwise feels a little bit smaller. It's it's almost like it's hidden in there, which is just cool. Yeah, that is definitely the, the hook for me with this movie, is that on, you know, on the epic scale, if you know what I mean, it, it is a fairly self-contained movie. It, it's, it doesn't have that grand scale of some of the later pictures that we would see, like, say... Captain America, you know, the two latter Captain America movies or 
uh, you know, some of the other ones in the series. But the the thing I like about this is that to me, this was like truly the beginning of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, uh, even above and beyond, say, the first Iron Man, because the first Iron Man just kind of set him up as a character. But, you know, except for the Nick Fury tag at the very end of the first Iron Man, it's a fairly self-contained movie. This one here blows things wide open and gives us so many Easter eggs and so much material that it's still being mined today. And and it could continue to be mined for a very long time. I mean, we ended up getting... Uh, you know, Howard Stark out of this. We ended up getting, uh, you know, some of the elements that were used with uh, with Agent Carter, uh, you know, elements that were used in Civil War and... Uh, Stark Expo at the beginning. Of yeah, the Stark America. Expo. Yeah, uh, so much stuff that they just continue to mind. And, you know, the Black Widow makes her debut in this movie. We get a lot more Nick Fury, you know, for all intents and purposes, Nick Fury really makes his debut here because, you know, there may be people that, that weren't aware of the tag scene at the end of, uh, of Iron Man because it was, you know, that, that, you know, at the very, you know, buried at the very end of the credits kind of thing. Yeah, and it was just a cameo where this is, you know, true supporting actor role. Yeah, exactly. And I, I just, I love that element of it i love all the world building in here and you know i love specific elements uh that we get of the world building as well i think john slattery as a very disney-esque howard stark was just you know that was a stroke of genius i don't know who came up with that but i absolutely love that portion of the film i i love that uh, John Favreau, who grew up in the shadow of you know the the Flushing Meadows fairgrounds, was able to incorporate something that was very near and dear to him as kind of his home turf, you know, as his his hometown, into something that's very important to the core of the film, and that's something that really speaks to me uh, very personally with this film is the incorporation of. You know, of course, they reinvent it here. It's not the 64 World's Fair. It's the 74 Stark Expo. But I just love that. I think that's genius. And that little, you know, little bit of film that we see both in the very beginning of the movie at the Expo and then later on when uh, Tony is looking at his father's uh, films and everything, that little bit of footage of John Slattery as Howard's, <coughs> pardon me, as Howard Stark you know, both with the finished product of the expo film. And then, you know, we get, we get to see like the little outtakes and things when they were filming the, uh, the expo film that is so aping Disney's Epcot film, you know, where, where basically that was like kind of Walt's last film, you know, where he was talking about the whole, you know, Epcot project as Epcot was, you know, Epcot, the city of the future type of thing. And I just love that. I mean, it's it, it's brilliant. It, they don't beat you over the head with it. You know, if you get it, you get it. But I, I love that it very clearly is aping that in a very intentional way. I think using uh, both the World's Fairgrounds as a backdrop for the film, but also using the World's Fairgrounds model as some sort of secret blueprint of the future beyond just a venue of, you know, uh, uh, about the future was just a stroke of genius. I don't know. Again, I don't know where that comes from, 
but I thought that was brilliant. And for me, that was just such a hook. And it's one of the big reasons that I really, really like this movie. So in a certain way, I can see that, you know, the casual film goer that may care nothing at all for any of that uh, wouldn't be as taken with the film as I am. But because I love it when my interests collide with each other, um, so to speak, you know, when they cross over, uh, yeah, I, I can't help but love the movie for it for those levels alone. But I often hear the movie criticized for its story, like the story's not very good. I often hear that it's. Uh, I'm trying to think of some of the specific words, and I should have looked up some of the well, the I criticisms. Gonna, I was actually going to approach you with a couple of things that I've heard or that I've sure. read or whatever that are criticisms of the movie, and I thought we might address those a little bit. Sure, yeah. So the first one, you know, you talk about the story. Uh, the first criticism of the story that I've picked up from a lot of people is uh, weak villain. You know, we already had him facing an armored foe in the first movie. Now he's facing another armored foe. Uh, and that Mickey Rourke was kind of mailing it in. That's the criticism. I'm not saying I necessarily buy into that. Well, I'm curious at what, how you take that. And I buy into some extent, but I also don't. So I'll, I'll give my thoughts after I hear yours. Well, I, I totally disagree. For one thing, you know, if you look at Iron Man historically as a comic book character, who the hell does he fight? He fights other armored people. That's kind of his thing. I mean, yeah, you've got the Mandarin and you've got a couple other of his bad guys, but for the most part, his big bads, at least the ones that generally go toe-to-toe with him, are also similarly armored people. You know, you've got the Titanium Man and... Um, and uh, gosh, I'm going to blank on the Crimson other one. Dynamo. Crimson Dynamo. Thank you. Um, which well, is, is kind of sort of Whiplash and the Crimson Dynamo. Yeah. I think. Yeah. And so I, I really, you know, here's the funny thing. Um, you know, I, I was tempted to put in my notes that I don't like Mickey Rourke, but I'll be honest with you. In, in fairness, I don't really know who Mickey Rourke is. I, I may have seen maybe one or two of his other movies. So he he's just one of those people I don't I don't really know. Now I'm gonna I'm gonna interrupt there and I'm gonna tell you. Uh, I mean I've seen Mickey Rourke kind of through his career or through a lot of roles that he's had, uh, and he was in a movie that I would recommend strongly is uh, Pope of Greenwich Village. If you've never seen that, I recommend it. It's not, it's not the Godfather, but it's it's just you know it's a gangster kind of movie. Uh, the the main gangster in it is uh, Paulie from Rocky, uh, Burt Young. Oh yeah, yeah, I like him. And, and it's it's Mickey Rourke and uh, Eric Roberts is his younger, not too bright cousin, and they get involved in stuff. And there are a couple of you know, not like I said, not not the brightest guys in the world, but they think they're big time. And they get mixed up in something, and uh, it, it's very entertaining. I think it was a really good movie, so I recommend that one to you. If you want to see Mickey Rourke when he was younger, and and time haven't hadn't ravaged him yet. Well, I mean, I I'll be honest. I mean, that does sound interesting. It's just, I mean, I don't really know him or or particularly care about him, so. I think maybe other people made maybe they were distracted by him because of their feelings for him positively or negatively. I'm I'm not really sure. For me, when he was initially cast, I was kind of like, eh, I don't like Mickey Rourke. But then when I when I really got to thinking about this today, because I was tempted to put that down as a no, you know, I don't normally like Mickey Rourke, but. And then I got to thinking, well, why don't I like the guy? I don't. I couldn't name you three movies he was in. You know, so in all fairness. Um, 
you know, he he's kind of uh, kind of neutral one way or the other. But in this particular role, I got to be honest, I really like him. I think that he's very engaging. Uh, I, I where he wins me over in the movie is in the scene after the Monaco attack, the, the scene in the jail cell when Tony comes and speaks to him. Their interplay in that moment and the and the dialogue they have between each other, I think is fantastic. I really like that that particular scene. Mm-hmm. And I think Rourke really comes across. There's other scenes where he doesn't really, but I think that's kind of his character because in the scene where he meets Justin Hammer for the first time, it is a little weird and a little awkward and, and Rourke is very subdued and all that, but I think that's supposed to be the way that scene plays. So it is supposed to feel the way it is. I I know one of the other criticisms I've often heard is, you know, the whole too many villains or too much going on in the story. And I call BS on all of that because I think the dynamic between Justin Hammer and Rourke's character, I I think you need that in order for it because Rourke can't do it on his own and Hammer can't do it at all. So they need each other, and I like the way that they play off each other, and I really like it toward the end of the movie where Hammer turns on uh, Rourke's character. So I I really like that. As far as the whole armored thing, though, I wanted to go back to that for a moment. I I wonder if people would feel the same way about this if um, Favreau had been able to do things the way he wanted to, because my understanding is he never wanted for Jeff Bridges' character, uh, Obadiah Stane, to become the Ironmonger in the first movie. I, I got to be honest, it's one of the reasons I'm not real high on Iron Man, the, the first movie. I enjoy it. Don't get me wrong. I'm not down on the movie, but it'd be a hell of a lot higher on my list if that wasn't the villain that they went for right out of the gate. I think that was a bad move because, to me... You know, and this is a case where I'm a little too familiar with the comics, I guess. But to me, Obadiah Stane is a villain that Tony Stark faces after great adversity, after he's overcome a lot of stuff. It's like that crowning achievement. You know, he re- he'd recovered from his alcoholism. He'd rebuilt his company. And it was that extra – it was that boss battle that he had to face now that he'd rebuilt himself and made himself back again. Now he had to go back and reclaim his company from the man who stole it from him. That's not the way it plays in Iron Man 1. He He's just – you know, he's that stereotypical opposite number like comic book movies were kind of doing up to that point and still continue to do kind of that point. So I think it cheapens that character. Well, so if I'm they going to disagree with you on that. Really? I'm, I'm going to take issue with that because I think I, I, so, I see what you're saying about the way it played out in the comics and I have no problem with the way they did it there. But I liken this where he's, you know, his, what's called Howard Stark's former partner who outlived Howard, and you don't even know if Howard died under mysterious circumstances. Or Well, no, we do know how Howard died, excuse me. I forgot we do know that now. Mm-hmm. Um, but We do now, I don't think we did but, at the time. No, we definitely did not. We didn't know that until Civil War. But uh, the fact that he was effectively a mentor to Tony after Howard died, and then betrayed him in the way that he does, and did so, to, in my opinion, with great charisma, 
Uh, I think Jeff Bridges is an incredibly charismatic actor. When he's oh, absolutely, uh, just the, the tone of his voice, the smile on his face, everything about him is so likable. And then for him to be saying these evil things, it just—I thought it was just a great contrast and, and such a such a betrayal that it really gave Tony a lot of his motivation in, you know, in in feeling so strongly about giving up the weapons manufacturing and everything. It, I, I mean, he was already on that road at that point, but I think it further cemented him in it to see these are bad people. This isn't what I want to be doing. Uh, I, I really thought it, it Iron Man, the first Iron Man is really high on my list. And, and uh, I think, you know, even the Iron Manga was fine just because of the way Jeff Bridges played it. I just, I can't help but wonder if maybe... Uh, Vanko's character, you know, the whole Whiplash slash Crimson Crimson Dynamo thing might work better for some people if we hadn't had Ironmonger right out of the gate with the first movie. If maybe it it would have felt a little fresher, but you know, be that as it, I think the uh, the Whiplash fights, although you know, I you you know what I think of the Monaco scene, uh, but I think they could have done with just being a little longer. They could yeah. have choreographed just to just to make there be more of a battle between Tony and, and Vanko. Uh, you know, the the Monaco scene, as great as it is, the actual fight ends pretty quickly. And the final battle, they you know, they take him out like a bitch a little bit. I see, I always thought that was kind of the point of it though, is that uh that at the end of the day he he was no Tony Stark. He he couldn't you know, he he was a genius in his own right, and he could come up with a lot of things, but he couldn't go toe to toe with Tony, much as he he tried. I I thought at least with the Monaco scene, I always thought that was kind of the point of that, because then you know when they talk in prison, you know Tony quickly points out, you know all the things that he perceived were wrong with. Uh, his armor and with the arc reactor that he had constructed. And he talks about cycles and all this different thing. And then Vanko takes the, his ideas and actually does that with his next armor. So yeah, I'll give you that. He, he does go down a little bit easily at the end, but by that point, you know, I, I thought it was, I thought it was a nicely wrapped up boss battle. It just in the sense that, Tony had 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 to go through the entire uh, four cadres of the the hammer drones or hammeroids as he calls them. I love that line. Uh, you know, it, before he actually gets to Venko himself. But yeah, I'll, I'll agree with you. I think you know, the 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 fight with Venko as kind of you know the whip whiplash slash crimson dynamo. Uh, you know, fighting him himself, that that could have been a little bit longer. But, I mean, I don't feel cheated or dissatisfied by the fight that we get there. Cause I don't feel cheated. I agree with that. I'm just thinking if, if, I was try, if I was looking at this movie trying to say, what can I do to make it better? I think that final scene, that final battle could have been just a little bit more choreographed to make it just a touch more touch and go. Right. And that's, you know, that's the only thing. That's one of the very few things. There's not a lot I would change in this movie. No, no, neither would I. And and it's it's a it's a pretty lean movie as well. That's something to keep in mind too. It runs. Uh, oh, actually, no, it's a little longer than I thought. It's a hundred and twenty-five minutes according to Wikipedia. I thought yeah, it was, I thought it was under two hours. No, I was going to say I thought this was about a two-hour movie. Well, you know what I'll what I'll say then. It runs. It it feels quicker than it is. 
Yeah. So that's that's a that's a compliment to the direction and the editing then because it's moving along fast. And there's a, like we've said, there's a lot of stuff going on here. A and lot. I think that's that's a little bit of a tribute to uh, to, to the direction in it. I think Favreau did a really nice job of having it run smoothly with all that information that's getting dumped on us throughout the whole movie. What were some of the other uh, criticisms that you'd heard? Okay, well, one of the biggest criticisms I heard, and one of the criticisms that I still hear to date from one of my best friends, who is a comic geek and saw the movie and immediately criticized and still does, the whole Tony Stark's birthday party with him being drunk and dancing and acting like an ass. He just hates that scene. I, I mean, that's quintessential Stark, though. I mean, if you look at... See, the thing is... A little is, bit of demon in the bottle in the movie. For, for whatever reason, they didn't want to specifically do demon in a bottle, and I'm really not sure why you wouldn't want to do probably what has become the the quintessential Iron Man story. That's the story that everybody points to and it makes all the lists you know, of the best Iron Man stories and all that sort of thing. And for a lot of people, that may be their only real familiarization with the character is that storyline. But for whatever reason, uh, I, and I don't, I don't know if it was the studio or Favreau or both or what, but they, they specifically did not want to do Demon in a Bottle. However, they did want to touch on elements of it. Well, we've and, talked in the past about how sometimes they tend to want to rush through the entire storyline of a character in just a couple of movies. Right. And I do feel like the Demon in the Bottle storyline is not should not be one of the earliest stories you see of this character. I think you need to have this character built up as a hero before you start to deconstruct him. Right. So I really didn't think it was appropriate to see it in the second movie. I think they maybe could have done it in the third but I think they would have been rushing into it too too quickly. As good as it was, I do remember that you and I were a little critical that they went into the Winter Soldier story in the second Captain America. Yeah, yeah. And, and it was a great movie. It's, I'm not criticizing the movie itself. It's just kind of the timing of how they got to it, that maybe they could have done some other storylines before they got there. Well, the reason, though, that I think that the alcohol is... I, I'm, I'm glad that they didn't do the full-blown... Uh, demon in a bottle story. I'm, I'm glad they didn't do a full blown. Okay, he's an alcoholic and he's got to come to grips with it and he's got to recover. All in the same movie. I mean, what what they gave us was essentially, you know, he has he has a really bad night. He gets too drunk. He gets carried away, and then he's got to come to grips with why am I acting this way? I really like that part of the movie because it's coupled with the fact of he's dying. You know, and and he's come. He he can't quite come to grips with it. He's trying to, and so I see it kind of the opposite. I see it as a guy who is trying to do the right thing. He's trying to be the hero, and be heroic. But he's facing a horrible death that only he himself and Jarvis know of. So, you know, this you know that night that party night is. In a lot of ways, it's almost like a cry for help. It, it's you know he he gets out of control, but by getting out of control, he eventually kind of gets the the help that he needs or the support that he. I don't know if that makes any sense, but it's just kind of the way that I see that whole scene. I, I like that yeah, a lot because a little bit of the you have to hit the bottom to to bounce back. Exactly, and you know traditionally. 
superhero movies, you know, that, that go a, a trilogy, typically this is what the second movie does. You know, we've had the first movie that gives you the origin, sets the character up, makes them the hero, blah, blah, blah. And then the second movie is usually where, you know, they have their fall or, or they hit rock bottom or, or they have, you know, whatever that is that they have to overcome. And, you know, we've seen this time and time again with so many of the superhero movies, you know, Superman two and, you know, Spider-Man two and all of these where, you know, it's the chapter in the middle where the, where the character really faces, uh, you know, that challenge or their demons or whatever the case may be. And, and in this particular one, the one that Tony's really facing is, uh, his mortality. And so I, I think given that story element, I think it's perfectly understandable that, you know, he gets out of control at what he thinks is his final birthday party. So I like that. I, I actually like that scene quite a bit. I think the fight that he and Rhodey have uh, is is a little over the top, but I really like it nonetheless, even though it is a little over the top. Um, that That is the one moment of the movie that that. I think does kind of get away from the groundedness, if that's even a word that most of the Marvel movies hold so tight to that one gets, a, it gets a little cartoony, but again, I I'll forgive it because I really enjoy it. I think it's a lot of fun. Yeah. I, I, I am not bothered by that scene. Like I said, so these are criticisms I'm hearing about the movie. Right. Uh, as opposed to criticisms I'm leveling on the movie. Right. Uh, I'm trying to think of what criticism I would put on it. Uh, you know, I don't have a lot of criticism of it. I think it's, you know, it, it, like I said, it's, it's, it's more of a smaller movie, uh, but there's a lot of information in it. it it's, as we said, it's, that, that's probably the biggest criticism I could level towards it. That if, if you just wanted to watch this movie on its own, it doesn't really... It's not that you can't pick up everything that's going on, but it seems a little disjointed because there's so much information that's being given to you to use later. And you, and you say, well, that scene kind of seems unnecessary. Uh, or that information seems unnecessary. Who cares? Until it becomes useful later. Right. So it might seem just a little directionless if you're not watching it as part of the greater universe if that makes any sense. But hmm. if you're watching it as part of the greater universe, then you start saying, oh, okay, that's where this ties into that, and that's where this ties into that. And you really do start to feel like this is this is where the Marvel Cinematic Universe became wide. This is what this is what opened the door for Captain America and Thor and the Hulk to all become Avengers with Tony Stark. I wonder, you know, I think you're onto something. I wonder if that's why people that... I see where they they go back and they rewatch the earlier films and they watch this one again almost invariably are like wow you know that's a lot better than I remembered or okay now I picked this up and that up and, and so I wonder if maybe some of the criticism that the movie has is by people that saw it when it was new and they haven't really seen it or, or really dived into it deeply since it was new. And now that this has kind of become the way Marvel movies are done, you know, when they, when people do go back and look at it now, it, it, it doesn't seem as, um, 
as weird, you know, as it as it may have when they saw it the first time. So I think you're onto something because, yeah, this is actually there are elements of the film. While I think the film works very well as a whole, I, I will clearly admit that there are elements of the film that could, I guess, be excised because they're not so much helping the film as they're helping the you know set things up later down the road. You know, certain things with Nick Fury, especially, you know, toward the end of the movie, the whole, you know, we want to use you as a consultant and all that, that you don't need that for this movie, but you need that for the Avengers. Mm -hmm. And so there was a lot of that world building and, and dropping things that would be expanded upon later on. But again, see, that's what I love about this because that's comic books to me. I mean, you know, as, as part of as part of you know the other show that you and I do together, Back to the Bins, you know that we have, I mean, how many comics have we read in our lifetime where there's the story, but then maybe there was a page in the story that when we synopsize it, we skip over because it doesn't lend into the story, but it's setting up another story that's going to play out, you know, 12 issues later or something. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? And Absolutely. comics, that's the way comics were written. And so I love that, you know, this is a comic book movie that's doing a very comic book thing. This scene may not be part of this movie per se, but it's giving you something that's going to play out in a future Marvel movie. That's that's brilliant. I love that. So, yeah, I you know, I, I, I've been racking my brains to try to think, what are my beefs with the movie? What are my criticisms of with the movie? And. Off the top of my, you know, because when I when I made my notes for this show, I actually didn't put down any criticisms, and I can't really think of any off the top of my head. Um, I mean, if I if I really had to fish for one, maybe Gwyneth Paltrow, but I mean, that's not really a criticism of the movie so much as I've never thought she was the greatest actress in the world. Um, she's cute, she's pretty to look at, but she's kind of a block of wood a lot of the time, so... But again, that's not necessarily a criticism of this film. That's just, you know, what I think of her personally. I think the movie's got a hell of a lot more working for it than it ever has working against it. Um, Some of my favorite things, just kind of off the top of my head, um, Don Cheadle uh, replacing what's-his-name as as Rhodey. Terrence Howard. Howard. Yeah, that, that's another thing that I didn't really like about the first Iron Man is that guy grates on me. He's got that um, Mike Tyson thing with his voice where I just want to <laughs> smack him, you know? He's just got a girly voice that really, you know, there's that scene where he comes in um, when Tony's, uh, where uh, Stain has taken the thing out of his chest and he's dying. And he comes, he walks in the house. And next time you watch that scene, listen to his voice, he comes in, Tony! Tony, Tony. And I was like, oh, Jesus, don't just don't talk. All right. Just just don't do that. It's See, oh, it's so irritating. Yeah, the thing about him is I think Don Cheadle is a an infinitely better actor. Oh, yeah. I think Don Cheadle delivers his lines much better. So but for that reason, he's a much better roadie. However, I do think Terrence Howard looked more like roadie. That's all he had, in my opinion, was the look, really. Maybe. I don't think he, maybe. I don't think he was the actor that Cheadle is, but I do think he had more of the look. I'll give you that, yeah. He, he may look more like comic book Rhodey. I'll give you that. And then, you know, of course, we get War Machine out of this, which was pretty awesome. Um, I don't know that we necessarily needed that, but I like that we got it. You know, it was a little bit of payoff from uh, from setting that up in the first movie. 
Um, I think Sam Rockwell is great in this as Justin Hammer. I really like him. Yeah, I think he he is a a a gem in this movie. I think mm-hmm. his delivery of his lines is just so awesome. He's he's giving you menacing and comic relief at the same time. Mm-hmm. And he's just he's so slimy, you know. Yeah. Which, I mean, just so the scene when he when he comes out at the Stark Expo and he starts trying to dance, right? Like like he's <laughs> he, he's trying to get the the crowd engaged the way Tony does, and he just can't. <laughs> I, I love that. Or, or even when when he's talking to Vanko and he's like, you know, when he, he he's like yelling at him and you know, take his shoes, you know, that kind of thing. Right. It, it, I just think there's so much cool stuff that goes on there, and I and I love that he did a little bit of a reprise of that role when they did uh, All Hail the King. Mm-hmm. That, that little feature. I'd like to see him back. I really would. Uh, I'd love to see him come back in a in a later film. If they if they really do, uh, you know, one of my big geek wishes for the for the MCU is to later down the line to do the Masters of Evil. I would love to see him involved in that somehow. Maybe in a uh, you know behind the scenes facilitating the tech Lex Luthory kind of way. I mean, I don't want to see him necessarily become an armored supervillain or something like that. But, you know, just as the guy who facilitates, you know, the team's tech or, you know, something to that effect, I'd love to see that. I I just, I I want more of him. I think he was great in the role and, you know, he, he threatens Pepper at the end of the movie and I'd like to see some payoff for that. I'd like to see that come back, you know, further down the line. So, you know, we'll see. Um, I, I lost my train of thought. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, but yeah, well, my, my original thought on this, if they weren't going Infinity Gauntlet, which they are, I, I would have waited for, you know, I, I, I kind of, in my mind, think we have infinite time that we here just make, keep making these movies and nobody's going to age out. Right. So I'm, I'm wrong on that. But my thought was the first wave would be the individual origins and the, uh, you know, the, the putting the band together for the Avengers movie. Then you'd have the Avengers movie, and then you're going to have Wave 2. And my thought was Wave 2 was going to be putting the band together for the Masters of Evil. Right. Which was going to lead to the second Avengers movie. Right. They didn't They didn't take my advice on that one. <laughs> but I thought that would have been really cool to have, you know, little cameos with the Red Skull and, you know, whoever else we, we could decide who was going to be in the Masters of Evil for this particular incarnation. I don't think it's too late, though. I, I don't think it's too late for them to still do something like that further down the line. You know, so uh, provided, as you say, you know, the actors don't age out or or lose interest or whatever the case may be. I I think that could still happen down the line. I'd love to see that happen down the line. I think that'd be really cool. Yeah, I I would like to see that as well. But you know, right now they they they're trying for bigger and bigger and bigger. So that's why we're going to the Infinity Gauntlet, and I'm not sure where we're going to go from there. I'm sure they have ideas, but they're they're keeping kind of kind of close lipped on the thing so far, anyway. Now, my suggestion: we we did a uh, a group panel discussion last night on uh, Logan, mm-hmm. and what I suggested is if Hugh Jackman has now aged out of the role effectively, and said he would only play it again if it was part of the greater Marvel universe, that Fox should say, well, you know, we're not going to throw away money because if it's the only way he's going to play the role we'll lend him out for one movie and we should have a hulk versus wolverine movie <laughs> i'd be down for that yeah i, I think i think the world would i, I would, would totally be, be down for be that like license to print money <laughs> i would totally be down for that 
What are your uh, What are your favorites for the movie? Well, you know, absolutely, my favorite is the Monaco scene. I just yep. think that is a perfect piece of filmmaking. Mm-hmm. I just every second of it has me smiling and totally wrapped up in it, and I, I just think it's it's absolutely great. It's a, it, there's a build up to it. Uh, there's there's the moments where you think he, Tony's not going to be able to to come out of it. The only thing about it that makes me shake my head a little bit is, all right, he's not really armored, or at least not fully armored, and yet Happy hits him with the car, and somehow the exoskeleton just revives him and he's he's okay, like he wasn't hurt at all. And we're talking about Vanko there. I've watched that scene a lot of times, and that's one of the things that I was always looking for in that scene is, how the heck did he survive that? But if you if you look at what he's what he has built for himself, he does have uh, it's not armor per se, but he has an exoskeleton that supposedly, you know, could withstand the the damage of it. So he didn't go the whole armored route like Tony did, but he does have, you know, a a pretty sturdy rig that he has built for himself. So I, I believe that's supposed to be the explanation and all of that is he wanted to give himself enough of an edge. To where you know he could effectively you know hold his own with Iron Man. Yeah, you know I, I, I accept that because, like I said, I think otherwise it's just pretty much a perfect scene. Um, I love. I, I like the, uh, the the way they build the Black Widow in it. I love the the scene where she's just taking everybody out while Happy is <laughs> struggling to to beat the one guy. Right. <laughs> and then when he finally when he finally he's finally like okay I got him and he looks and everybody else is like laying on the floor. <laughs> Again, Sam Rockwell is just awesome in his like with the what is it the the ex wife, yeah, the, the whole thing that he that he has to, to armor up the uh, the war machine armor. Uh, I think the whole you know despite the criticism of the uh, the drunken Tony at the at the party, the whole means that they get the war machine armor and and take it into custody is is great. I love the scene in in front of Congress with Tony where he's. You know, he basically uh, hijacks their uh, their computer system to show the films that he wants to show. <laughs> uh, there's, there's a lot of stuff in this. I think this movie is, again, I think it, I think the criticism it gets is way overblown. Uh, so I, I don't have much in the way of negatives. Uh, looking at the cast, we talked about, well, I mean, we've talked in general about Robert Downey Jr. I mean, there's no question he owns the part of Tony Stark. I remember when he first got cast in the role, people were saying, you know, because of his history with drugs and everything, that this was going to be a problem and he wasn't going to be able to handle it and, you know, that, that this was a mistake. But, boy, I, 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 there's not too many people who I can point to who've taken to a role more than he has. In right. Uh, I kind of agree with you with Gwyneth Paltrow. I think her whole appeal is if you do think she's cute or, or sexy – that then you just kind of accept her, and you know you find then you find her to be enjoyable. But I really don't think she brings a lot to the table as an actual actress. No, I don't either. Academy Award notwithstanding, uh, Don Cheadle we discussed. Scarlett Johansson, first of all, she's beautiful. Uh, yeah, and I think she did a really nice job of of doing the Black Widow in in all the parts in all the movies that she's been in so far. Yeah. Uh, so I, I think she's another one. You know that that they've just done such a great job of casting these people. Uh, who else? We got Mickey Rourke. We've talked about Samuel Jackson. Yeah, Samuel Jackson's interesting because you know Nick Fury was always you know for better or worse he was David Hasselhoff, 
And uh, then in, in the Ultimate Universe, they decided to make him Samuel Jackson. And then when they made movies, they said, well, we might as well cast Samuel Jackson in the role. <laughs> so, I mean, it, it couldn't be more clear that he's the, the person that, that they were showing in those comics. And he fits the role, you know, really well. I love the moment back at Tony's uh, house where they're out on the deck and he basically is telling him the, the secret origin of shield and that his dad was involved in the whole thing. I, I really like that scene. I think that scene plays very, very well. And he's informing him about Vanko and all of that. I mean, he fills in a lot of the gaps. It's a lot of exposition, but I, I think it's a very well done scene for it being just a lot of exposition. Now you, you talked about Howard Stark as Walt Disney. Mm-hmm. And in my mind, I start creating, well, that's, of course, that's just, just such a natural thing. It just seems so obvious. And it does in hindsight. But I do agree with you that it, that it was a little bit of genius to put him in that role. Because looking back on it, I didn't see him as Disney. I saw him as Howard Hughes. Right. So they, they took him away from that, that Howard Hughes persona and they gave him the Disney persona. And I think that really works so much better in here. Well, I don't, I'll disagree just in the sense that I don't think they took it away from him. I think that he went from Howard Hughes to Walt Disney, if you know what I mean. So I see Howard Stark as, when you look at young Howard Stark, like what when we meet him in Captain America First Avenger and we're seeing him in uh, the Agent Carter series and everything, I think he's very much Howard Hughes in in, in that aspect. But he becomes a, a Disney-like figure toward the end of his life, you know, as, as he matures. So he's almost, uh, you know, he's almost Disney getting there by being, you know, by starting out as Howard Hughes as opposed to starting out as a, as a you know, cartoon maker kind of thing. And I really like that. It's, it's, a, it's a wonderful melding of, of those two historical personalities into this character of Howard Stark. And I think it was just very, very well done. Uh, my personal favorite part, uh, my favorite scene of the entire movie is when Tony is, uh, is back at his place and he's basically been kind of con- confined to quarters and he's going through his dad's you know journals and he's playing the movie just kind of you know, it's just kind of playing in the background. He's not paying a lot of attention to it. And then we see Howard come on screen and Tony doesn't realize it until he speaks directly to him and he, and he calls his name. And yeah, that, that's a great little touch there. Cause you have young Tony in the room with him. Right. In the film. And right. That's who he's talking to. Right. And, and that's nice. Very nicely put together. I, I just, I love that scene because it, it, it's him speaking to his son through time. You know, not only is it through time, but also, you know, through the I'm trying to remember how how Tony says it at the beginning of the movie, you know, from the great beyond, he says when he introduces his dad in the in the film at the beginning of the movie. So it's him speaking to him, you know, both through through time and, you know, through the veil of, you know, the curtain of death and speaking directly to him. And I I just love that moment because. It's kind of like the Fortress of Solitude scene for this character, if you know what I mean. And and I just I love that. I, I love that it it, it lends uh, something special to you know Howard Stark's character. It lends something to Tony's character. It's bringing these characters together, uh, father and son, 
you know, despite the father now being, you know, long dead and everything, it's a lot of things all in one scene. And again, you know, the whole thing with, uh, you know, where he points to the model and says, you know, this is more than just people's dreams and ideas. You know, this is the future. This is the blueprint of the future. And I love that. I mean, I... I, Now, why does Howard hide his new element in his blueprint for the Stark Expo? I, I mean, according what, what is the reasoning behind that? Because that's that's kind of a plot hole I've never figured out. Well, according to him, it was something that he knew that you know he figured only Tony was was smart enough to figure it out and and to make it happen. I'm I'm Why assuming would he hide it. Well, I'm assuming because like, did, he didn't want others to steal it. You mean hide it as far as why not just you know leave it for him in a in a vault or something? That I that I don't know. That that is an interesting question. You know why would he disguise it and not even have Tony know it's there unless he was lucky enough to stumble upon it? Well, then again, it is Fury that brings it to him. So maybe even if Tony hadn't been dying of palladium poisoning, maybe you know there was some sort of thing there that you know he had arranged it with Fury that at some at some point you know, bring this to Tony because it is Fury that brings it to him. It just happens to be the thing that also cures him. Um, which is a criticism I've heard. And I, you know what? I'll, I'll give them that, you know, the critics, I'll give them that one that not only is this, you know, the, the secret blueprint of the future, but Hey, you know, isn't that coincidental? It's also the thing that saves us. Like, okay, I'll, I'll give you that one. But it, but, again, but I, it doesn't I, I, bother you know, me. It, it doesn't. Why the, uh, why the cloak and dagger stuff? Why not have it in a safe and say, Tony, when you're old enough and ready to attack this, Here's a problem that I was working on to create this element that I think is going to be, you know, tremendous to help humanity, whatever. But I mean, isn't like, why, that... A- why, why disguise it in a blueprint for the expo? I, like, it just doesn't sit right. I don't know exactly why you would do that. But I mean, isn't that exactly what happens, though? By Fury bringing him that case and saying, okay, you've got this, right? And and basically winking and nodding at him like there's something important in here that you need to look at and you need to figure out. And then Tony watches the films and his, his father comes right out and says, this is more than just what it appears to be. This this means something and I think you're smart enough to figure it out and, and make it reality. So I I don't think it's as as cloak and daggery as you as you might think because I I think that there was some sort of a of a half-ass plan there for Fury to present him this if he himself was no longer around to present it to Tony personally. I, I think that he had set this up as some sort of contingency plan. And you have to remember, even if there is a little bit of cloak and dagger, I mean, at this point in his life, he has been, you know, part of shield. So mm-hmm. yeah, the, the cloak and dagger thing is, is going to be in play because effectively he is now part of a, you know, secret spy organization. You know, he's one of the founding members. So there's that. So now if Tony isn't dying of palladium poisoning, uh-huh. does he, does he discover this element? Hmm. That's a good question. Because and if he isn't dying of palladium poisoning, does this element change the world in any way, shape, or form? Because other than you using it to cure himself, I'm not sure that we saw any applications. For oh, absolutely. Yeah, it, it's now what's what's running Stark Tower at the beginning of the Avengers. 
It's it's the new it's the new clean energy technology that Loki's talking about and everything. He had the arc reactor already up and running. I, I this and this maybe he, I'm missing something here. He did, the but the way the, I saw it was he had the arc reactor running. The only reason he had a problem was because that mini arc reactor was embedded in his body. But otherwise, that it was up and running. He had that giant one when he's fighting the Ironmonger. He does, but even that one, there, there's a line of dialogue. I, I couldn't quote it to you, but there is a line of dialogue. Uh, I, actually, I think there's a couple of them in the first Iron Man that effectively say that while they do have it up and running there at, uh, at Stark Enterprises, that effectively it's, it's just for show and that it doesn't really – I, I I can't remember quite the line. It's not that it doesn't work, but it doesn't work. You know what I mean? It it, it it's not what it could be or what 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 Howard or whoever invented it had wanted it to be. And I think with now with this new element, I think now this is the perfection of the arc reactor. So now it reaches its potential for whatever it was that it was intended to do, which I guess is to be a clean energy, you know, a, a, you know, a new energy source for the world. At least that's the way I'm reading it, anyway. Because I, I, my, my understanding was, you know, we went from the from the arc reactor that that worked simply for Tony, you know, for keeping him alive and for powering Iron Man, but it wasn't really much good for anything else, and it was also killing him, by the way. And then, you know, now you've got to the next step, which is okay. Now it's truly perfected because now we have the elements that we were missing from the formula before. With this element, now it not only works as a power source for for Tony's heart and for Iron Man's armor, but now, now we can have the arc reactor that we were always meant to have, and and now the world has its its energy. And that's okay. I, I could be dead wrong about that, but that's the way I always have seen I'll, it because I'll, I think I'll accept that logic. I think I that's no why that. we see when we pick up with Iron Man and the Avengers. I think that's very specifically why we're seeing him doing what he's doing is because I think that's an outgrowth of the technology. I don't know. Does that follow? It, it's it's a, it's a, a logic that I can follow and make sense. Right. So so I will ex- <laughs> I will accept it as as fact then because it's better than what I had in my mind where, you know, my logic was, huh, <laughs> I wonder why he did that. So yours is much better. I'll go with that. I don't know if you, I don't know if that's what they intended or if you're no prizing it. I'm not sure, but I'll accept it either way. <laughs> so let's move, move along a little bit here because we we are coming up against it a little bit. So, okay. I know you're a big fan of it, and you are far more learned on the subject than me. Tell me about the score. I really enjoy the score. I want to love the score, and I'll be honest with you, it, it's I'm really conflicted because it's one of those ones that's tough because it works very, very well in the movie. So when I'm watching the movie, I really enjoy the score. It has a couple of moments of true greatness in the movie, um, specifically the Monaco scene. The Monaco scene does something for me that off the top of my head, I can't think of another superhero movie that ever did it for me the same way outside of Superman the movie. And that's high praise coming from me is in the first Superman movie when Lois Lane is dangling off the helicopter. There's a very slow build in the score up until the moment that Chris Reeve op- you know, rips his shirt open, revealing the S, and then changes into Superman. Iron Man 2 manages to do the exact same thing in the Monaco scene because there's a wonderful moment. And it starts right about the time that 
Happy keeps slamming the car into Vanko. And there's a moment where they slam into him like for the third or fourth time. And Tony's getting really frustrated because he wants the suitcase. And he's like, come on, come on. And there's a moment where he's hollering to them to throw him the suitcase. And then finally they slide it to him. And if you listen to the score in the background, it's a very slow build up to the moment where all of a sudden it kicks into the Iron Man theme for this movie. Unfortunately, all three of the Iron Man movies have had a different composer and a different theme for Iron Man. This one is my personal favorite theme for Iron Man because it's distinct. So whenever you hear it, you know, okay, this is Iron Man in action. And so it's that slow build up to the dun, dun, da, 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 dun, dun. And then he becomes Iron Man. I love that. I call that a shirt rip, even though, of course, it's not him ripping his shirt. But this is probably my second favorite uh, superhero movie shirt rip of all time next to Superman the movie because it's just friggin' awesome. I love it. So the score works great in that moment. Um, it works really well when Tony is playing with the model and, and playing with the CGI version of the model and putting it all together and figuring out what's going on. Uh, the music in that scene is, is wonderful. And it's, again, it, it, to me, it's, it's whether intentional or not, it's very much a, a, a musical callback in a lot of ways to like the fortress of solitude scene from Superman. Um, and then one of the things that I love the most about this is that because, one of the backdrops of the movie is World's Fair, you know, the, at least the World's Fair grounds. Uh, they actually brought uh, Richard Sherman, who was one half of the Sherman Brothers team that wrote uh, There's a Great Big Beautiful Tomorrow for uh, the Carousel of Progress at the 1964 World's Fair, which was a song and, you know, that attraction and the song that went with it were all about the future, and so Richard Sherman, his brother, unfortunately, had passed away by this point, but they brought Richard Sherman back and basically were like, we want you to do this again, but you can't use Great Big Beautiful Tomorrow. But could you write something like Great Big Beautiful Tomorrow for the Stark Expo? And he created a song called Make Way for the Future Today. And I love that song because it is very much just there's a Great Big Beautiful Tomorrow with just a different tune and different lyrics, but it's a great piece of music and they use it several different ways in the movie. You know, there's a, there's a song, you know, there's one that actually has, you know, people singing and it has lyrics and everything. And then there's several different, uh, styles of the played, uh, instrumentally uh, in the movie. And then it's reused again when, um, Bucky and Steve Rogers go to the expo, in the forties in captain America, first Avenger, they actually play it there in a very forties motif. So they, they've reused the same piece of music several times, uh, with you know, played in several different ways. And I really like that. Um, unfortunately this score away from the movie doesn't work as well. It's, it's a good score, but it's not great like I was hoping it would be because I, I'm a big fan of Debney. I really like Debney as a composer, and there's a lot of moments of the score that are, are really, really good. Um, but as a, as a whole, um, and especially as, a, as an isolated album, eh, it, it has extreme highs and extreme lows. There's a lot of stuff that's, that's just kind of quiet and just kind of backgroundy. But I'll give him this much, you know, the the – the Marvel Cinematic Universe movies are often criticized for not having themes. 
And his score for Iron Man 2 is really the first one to have um, distinct themes, at least as far as Iron Man himself. Uh, I can't really discern individual themes for other characters, but the theme for Iron Man in this is something that I did walk out of the, the, the you know out of the theater humming, which didn't happen with most of the other pre-Avengers movies uh, the, theatrically. The, the, they just most of them the, the music was kind of forgettable, if you know what I mean. So yeah, I, I do like the score. It's funny, I, I had thought the same thing, and I'm not. I don't pay attention to the score quite the way you do. Right. But I had thought the same thing until Andy Leyland pointed out to me, he says, what are you kidding me? The Captain America's theme is incredibly recognizable. And then I listened, I was like, oh, shit. That's true. I can't believe I, can't believe I didn't notice that. <laughs> that's true. It is. It is. He's right. But but that's the one. Thor doesn't really have much of a recognizable theme. The Hulk didn't have much of a recognizable theme. All right. So at this point, unless you have something else you'd like to touch on, if you have something in your notes. Um. No, I think I've hit pretty much all of my notes. <laughs> all right, so then the question is, I kind of already said, uh, and I'll, I'll give my, uh, I'll give mine first. Usually, I'll ask you for yours first, but I already kind of said mine. So, where does this fall on the Jaws scale? And just to repeat the Jaws scale, as I do every show, uh, Jaws is an absolute classic, great movie, virtually flawless. Jaws two, really solid movie, very enjoyable, worthy of repeat viewing. Jaws 3, okay, got some enjoyment out of it, but nothing particularly special at all. Jaws 4, bad movie. <laughs> now, in, in, on my scale, this, this is a Jaws 2 because it's very rewatchable. It is not a perfect movie, in my opinion. It's not, you know, there are flaws to it. There are points where it's not, where it doesn't step up and get to that all-time classic level. But I think it's very enjoyable. And as I said, I think it's really, really high on the rewatchability scale. So for me, it's a Jaws 2. Having recently rewatched Jaws 2 myself, I was curious oh, and, to... and it doesn't compare. And those ratings are not my reviews of those. Okay, movies. yeah, I was going to ask you if you had seen Jaws 2 recently because I hadn't <laughs> seen Jaws 2 in years and I rewatched it recently and you do realize that Jaws 2 is no Jaws 2, right? Well, in, in, on the Jaws scale, Jaws is Jaws. Right. Jaws, Jaws 2 is Jaws 3. Right, yes. yes. Jaws, <laughs> Jaws 3 is Jaws 4. Right. Jaws 4 is a high Jaws 4. <laughs> just because just just it's so bad, it's funny at times. So there is no Jaws 2. That's funny. No, None of the Jaws movie rank as Jaws 2. That is funny. Okay. Well, here's the big question. All right. So is it Jaws? Here's the thing for me personally, and I, and I know you don't necessarily set criteria, but you know me. I'm the criteria guy. So I set criteria for myself. What do I think is Jaws. So for me personally, for a movie to be Jaws, it has to nail all three of these criteria. So criteria number one is, uh, will I watch it whenever it's on, no matter where I catch it? Like if I'm flipping channels, no matter where it is in the movie, will I find myself watching it right to the end? Yes. With this particular movie, I will answer yes to that. I love this movie and it doesn't matter where it is, uh, at what point it's on. If I was to flip onto it, I'd be like, Ooh, Iron Man two. I'm going to sit. Even if I only intend to watch like five minutes of it, I'd probably end up watching it all the way to the end just cause I really, really love it. Uh, second criteria, it's gotta be eminently quotable. 
Jaws is an eminently quotable movie. There are so many lines from that movie that many of us use in our common everyday speech. Sadly, Iron Man 2 is not eminently quotable. There are great lines in it, and I'm sure if I thought long and hard enough about it, there probably are lines that I use on a frequent basis, but off the top of my head, I can't think of a single one. So it's not necessarily eminently quotable. And then three, again, on, on my personal criteria, it has to have a great and or classic score, something on the on the level of a John Williams, like a John Williams Jaws or Superman or Raiders of the Lost Ark or The Empire Strikes Back, something like that. Sadly, Iron Man 2, I really like the score and I really enjoy the score. It is not a great and or classic score. So is it Jaws? It is not. I, however, would rank this like a Jaws 2.5. Uh, I really like this movie a lot. I, I dare say I love this movie. This is currently probably my second favorite of the Marvel movies. Yes, I really do rank it that high. Um, off the top of my head, the only one that I, I personally like better than this one of the 14 Marvel movies is Guardians of the Galaxy. Um, and because it it hits a lot of the same buttons, to be honest with you. Um, you know, I also, uh, hold, uh, you know, the two latter Captain America movies, uh, right at the same level as, as well. I think they're also fantastic movies, but this one just speaks to me personally on a lot of levels. Um, but or, unfortunately not Jaws. I think we can go with that. I think that's fair. Cool. Uh, so I'm interested in hearing now, again, we talked about how this movie is maligned. Mm-hmm. Uh, the people criticize this one. It's not one of their big favorites, or certainly the public opinion is that it's not one of the the biggest successes in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. So I'd be interested in hearing anybody listening to this. If your opinions differ from ours, uh, why? What about it bothered you, or what about it makes you think it's even better than we thought it was? Uh, I have an email. It's called it's Jaws Podcast at Gmail dot com. Please. Right in. Let us know. Well, you know. Until then, go ahead, Scott. I, I did uncover a couple of uh, of interesting things, though, because like you, I, I have heard a lot of criticism of the movie, and I was under the impression that the movie is not well regarded at all. But strangely, you know, on the subject, and I, and I know we don't put a whole lot of stock in numbers. Uh, as far as box office and that, but I did find it interesting that this movie not only costs uh, sixty million more to make than Iron Man One, meaning that they, you know, they put a lot more money into it, and they were willing to risk more with it, but also it made uh, more than Iron Man One, which I was not aware of. I didn't think it did as well as Iron Man One, but it did. It actually grossed uh, thirty-eight point seven million uh, above and beyond Iron Man One. But the most interesting thing to me today was noticing that. Its scores on both IMDb and Rotten Tomatoes are very high, and I was not under that was not the impression I had given the amount of criticism and frankly the amount of shit that I see it take on like Facebook and stuff. I see the movie really cut down and maligned a lot on social media, so I was under the impression that the score was like tragically low. But uh, just taking like say Rotten Tomatoes for example, it's got a seventy-two, and that ain't bad. No, that's not terrible. That's why I said it's it's maligned, but I I would decline to say much maligned. Right. Because I don't I don't think people hate it. I just think people don't hold it in high esteem. Right. 
So that's that's where I think the difference is. I think there's a lot of people who would rank this as Jaws three. I don't think there's people out there who would rank it as Jaws four. Right. So, you know, seventy two might fall in line with that. Sure. Okay. Well, I guess on that we'll, we'll call it a call it a night, and we'll see you in two weeks with a new movie. Thanks for listening, everybody. And thanks for coming on, Scott. Hey, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. You'll be back soon. From the poor man's Joss Whedon comes the forgettable follow-up to Iron Man. That's essentially just killing time until the Avengers. Iron Man 2. The completely disappointing sequel you fooled yourself into liking simply because it had Iron Man in it. Suit Up for a feature-length version of the Nick Fury bonus scene from the end of the first Iron Man, which will still be unresolved by the end of this movie. Tony Stark not... not recommended? We've witnessed Tony Stark battle global terrorism and his inner demons. Now, prepare to see him take on his biggest challenges yet. Tedious government committees. Can you please read page 57, paragraph 4? You're requesting that I read specific selections from my reports, sir? Yes, sir. Corporate maneuvering. It was an illegal seizure of trademark property. Low batteries. Another core has been depleted. Alcoholism? And some guy with a bird. I want my bird. Is this a bird back in Russia? A sequel so inferior, it will replace an awesome origin story with countless subplots you won't remember as soon as you walk out of the theater. A story that ditches technology grounded in reality for laughably unrealistic magic holograms. Loose landscape in the shrubbery, the trees, parking lots, exits, entrances. And substitutes Jeff Bridges with Gary Shandling. Do you or do you not possess a specialized weapon? Witness a superhero movie with just enough Iron Man action to fill a three-minute trailer, but not a feature-length film. Trust us, we counted. Instead, sit back and prepare to watch Iron Man, attend corporate events, eat donuts, DJ birthday parties, and pee his pants. Experience the epic face-off between Iron Man and one of Marvel's least known villains, Whiplash, who's harnessed the most dangerous modern technology ever, only to waste it on a whip. A foe with no known superpowers, who somehow survives being crushed by a car. Not once. Not twice. But four times. To defeat this madman, Iron Man's bringing in backup, and they are all just as boring as the rest of the movie. Pepper Potts, an inconsistent nag who's totally cool with her boyfriend being Iron Man, but freaks out when he drives a car. What do you know about this? This cannot happen. Black Widow, a sexy spy shoehorned into the movie just to establish her boobs for the Avengers and Lieutenant Colonel James Rhodes. Nope, no, no, not that one. Yeah, that's the one. Who has the skills to perfectly fit in and pilot an Iron Man suit without any previous experience. Wait, didn't Tony need like half a movie to figure out how to work that thing? A new chapter so thin, the key to the entire plot is resolved by a 40-year-old Easter egg from Tony's dad. Tony, I built this for you. 
one day you'll figure this out. Who decades earlier somehow knew his grown son would keep his old diorama, put it in an impossible to predict holographic computer display that can magnify impossible amounts of detail and reveal the chemical makeup of an impossible to create element. Unfortunately, it is impossible to synthesize. Which Tony immediately synthesizes in order to wrap up all loose ends. Congratulations, you have created a new element. Ugh, someone got paid to write this? Starring Rob Stark, Mrs. Coldplay, Better Terrence Howard, some guy in a Mickey Rourke mask. Oh, that guy from, um, oh, well, he was in that one movie. A guy in a Gary Shandling mask, Vince Vaughn's BFF, Don Draper, Sam Elliott? No, uh, uh, man, it's bugging me. And Hawkeye with boobs, Iron Man 2. Sam Rockwell, it's Sam Rockwell. That's the guy. I loved him in Galaxy Quest. Thanks for watching. Be sure to subscribe. The following takes place between 2 p.m. and 3 p.m. Trust me, I'm the doctor. Side effects may include drowsiness and loss of appetite. It's not a tumor. If you smell what The Rock is cooking.